independent media is more important than ever. We don't have a corporate network behind us, and we also don't have big green foundation grants. So we really do need you, and we are actively calling in your direct support so that we can continue exploring many of these topics and perspectives, often sidelined by mainstream media. If you're enjoying our show, please make sure you're subscribed and join us on Patreon today, starting at a tip of just $3 at patreon.com slash green dreamer. Every little bit helps and really adds up. And that is the power in community. So thank you so much for however you're able to support our work. Green Dreamer is supported by our listener patrons at greendreamer.com slash support. And this month, our work is also supported by Conscious Step, a fair trade, got certified organic cotton socks brand that donates to a cause for every pair sold. What really stood out to me is not just the fun variety of nature inspired prints that their socks have, but also the variety of causes they support, many of which help to address social and environmental injustice from rainforest and ocean conservation, access to clean water, education, combating violence, and more. If you're an avid listener of this show, you know how important it's been for us to really find the connections between different social and environmental concerns. And I just really appreciate our alignment there. So next time you need new socks for yourself or for loved ones, you can shop their socks at ConsciousStep.com and use our code GREENDREAMER for 20% off. Again, it's ConsciousStep.com and GREENDREAMER for 20% off. The beauty of this of this stuff, compost, is that it's it's connecting so much, so many different aspects of our of our lives. It's waste, it's soil building, it's green infrastructure, and it's something that everybody can can do, can participate in. So it really is this avenue for engagement of people in the stewardship of our environment and of our planet that any age person can do, and it's a daily practice. That was James McSweeney, an educator and owner of Compost Technical Services and the author of Community Scale Composting Systems, a comprehensive practical guide for closing the food system loop and solving our waste crisis. Did you know that 20% of what goes into our municipal landfills is food? This was according to the US EPA from 2014. And that is just not okay because all of that biological waste is so valuable as a resource and a source of nutrient for our concurrently degrading soils that we really have to find ways to close this loop. We hadn't really gone deep into the topic of composting on the show just yet, so this is an episode that you definitely don't want to miss as we discuss our so-called food waste crisis, the challenges we face in implementing decentralized community composting systems or scaling composting facilities, and more. Green Dreamer, if you're ready, take a deep breath and let's dive in. Hey, it's Kamea Shane, and this is Green Dreamer, a podcast exploring our paths to ecological balance, intersectional sustainability, and true abundance and wellness for all. If you haven't already, make sure to hit subscribe, and together, let's learn what it takes to thrive in every sense of the word. After college, I was lucky enough to get a job, land a job on Kauai in Hawaii, and was sort of 
doing this combination of research and a lot of different things, but there was a focus on sort of soil health and soil microbiology and on this really denuded piece of property that it had all the topsoil pushed into the um, pushed into the, the canyon next to it and then sugarcane and pineapple and then grass mowed super short and it was just this clay soil that needed a lot of help to be to be farmed and there were people who were brought onto the island to kind of educate us um, including Elaine Ingham and who's the soil food web researcher and a guy named Hendrika Straven who is this sort of organic organic landscaping guru and they were you know they're basically like you know you can't fix the soil just by crop rotations and carbocropping. cropping you you need to seed this soil with life otherwise it's going to take forever for you to build this soil and you know at the time i kind of said okay you know we're just planting we're planting a food forest we're just going to plant it in the the earth will slowly heal itself. They said, whoa, whoa, slow down. <laughs> You've got to make, and, and we couldn't get compost. I mean, the best compost on the island at the time cost $100 a yard, and which is really expensive. And and it was made from albizia trees, which is a nitrogen-fixing tree. And it was all the way from the south side of the island. I mean, it was like, you know, we basically had to make our own compost. And, and I didn't really know much about it at the time. And I was recalling like I was home in Vermont for Christmas and we were, my whole family was kind of trying to do the math, how to calculate the carbon and nitrogen ratio of different materials. And like we were coming up with the formulas ourselves and little did I know that you can, the formulas are right on Cornell's website. <laughs> and, uh, but anyhow, it was just kind of like, you know, I, I started getting really interested in the science, not really having an outlet for that until I moved back to Vermont and worked at, at a nonprofit called the Highfield Center for Composting. And there I had a mentor named Tom Gilbert who who basically brought me on and trained me in the technical aspects of composting. And from and from there, you know, I've done composting on sort of a medium scale and helped manage their composting operation. But really, I've been able to learn from hundreds of different composters. And that's the kind of the beauty of the position that I'm in as a consultant is I'm out there, I've had time to research, like in creating my book, research in helping different composters kind of solve the problems that come up for them. And yeah, and kind of been able to pass on that knowledge and learn from other people's mistakes and successes. And yeah, so that's what sort of brought me here mm-hmm. now. Yeah. I'm going to kick off the rest of our conversation by reading a quote from your book, which I think will set up the rest of this beautifully and get us to approach this entire discussion with the right mindset. You say, food is not waste unless food is wasted. Therefore, the term food waste is a misnomer, despite its widespread use. In transitioning from a waste paradigm to a resource paradigm, the language that we use matters. We are not managing wastes, we are managing resources, end quote. What are the limitations we might place in ourselves by using the term food waste? And why is this language so important? It's a really good question. I, 
I'm not the only one who, who thinks this. It was sort of an idea that was taught to me early on, and, and it's developed over the years. And what, what my, my understanding now is that waste is a, is a verb, not a, not a noun. Mm. And so by using it as, as a noun, that there's this thing called food waste, we're undermining the choice that we make to create waste. And so, you know, a lot of people out there don't have an easy option to compost right now and they are wasting food um, or they are wasting this resource. So that's really where sort of this paradigm shift is happening is, is that as we realize that this is, this is not waste, this is a resource that can be captured. People everywhere are, are taking action to kind of provide a choice to people so that organic matter of all different types, um, food scraps included, kind of can, can find a home and get back to the soil. Right. I've actually just had a very similar discussion about the importance of language with our past guest, Farmer Rishi, back on episode 223, I believe. And we talked about the same concept of food waste as well. When people talk about addressing food waste, what usually comes of those discussions is our need for more efficient distribution networks so that there's no surplus exiting the food supply chain from grower to consumer, or otherwise the restaurants and individual households should try to eat and use everything up. And yes, we should prioritize those things, but it shouldn't end there and be food waste period after that. When I look to the living world, I see that, you know, the fruits fallen from a tree, they don't necessarily all get eaten up by the same animal or the same herd of the same animal. They leave when they're full, but then after they leave, you have other scavengers coming by and then you have the microbes and fungi on the ground start to break down the rest into what can go on to renourish the soil, which is right there. And that circularity just continues. I'm wondering if you think there's currently a disconnect between our food production system and composting and resource management systems that's leaving a lot of us thinking about food waste with this incomplete picture. It, it's inherent even in just how our regulatory system regulates this material. It's, it's an agricultural product, food, Right. But as soon as it goes in the trash can, it's waste or but in, even if it goes in the compost bucket on your kitchen counter, it is it's wasted. And that's true pretty much everywhere from a regulatory perspective. So there's this. This tension that I became aware of very quickly when I started working in composting. And this was right around the time when food scrap composting was really coming into the picture in a big way. And I could sense this tension that it was like, I'm a farm. I want to, I want to take this resource and put it into the soil. Why am I being regulated like a landfill? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, there, there's that, you know, and, and how, how this is approached is, is so much framed within sort of the context of how we view the world. And it's like, it can be people's, people's picture of, you know, farmers are really thinking about things one way and waste managers are thinking about things a completely different way. 
you know, and that's, and that's changing. And that's not true of everybody. I really, I, 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 I don't want to make generalizations because that's, that's not true, but, but there is sort of this siloing that's, you know, right in the way that the regulations are, are, are written. And it's, it's kind of hard, hard to get around and it, and it creates tension and kind of barriers that need to be looked at and sort of actively circumvented <laughs> to re-kind of connect those the, the waste world and the, the the food system and and ideally this material never exits the food system you know it's going sort of directly from our kitchens right back to the farm or right back to feeding animals and as much as as we possibly can reduce the the amount of wasted food upstream of that you know, that's certainly the most efficient way to be doing things. And and there's so much and it's hard to even quantify how much food is, is being wasted. And, you know, but you hear numbers in uh, astonishing numbers. So just to clarify, are the regulations we have on compost currently the same as the regulations on landfill, which really is the last resort in terms of where our waste ends up. So has that been serving, uh, acting as a problem? Well, it's it's most often in the same set of regulations. They have their, uh, most states have their own regulations that are specific to organics management facilities, you know, compost facilities. But God is in the details. It's, it some states kind of have a pathway for farms that's a, that's a little bit simpler or has a little bit more support provides some of the protections that farms have others don't it's yeah so so the regulatory side of it part of it is is like you're saying like language matters just the fact that it's in those rules that it's you know being managed by solid waste departments versus agricultural departments <laughs> it matters you know and you know, there's pros and cons to both, frankly. I think as long as as long as people are connecting the two, <laughs> that's the that's the key piece and and, and 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 valuing the material as a as a agricultural input because it's I mean the beauty of this of this stuff, compost, is that it's it's connecting so much so many different aspects of our of our lives. It's waste, it's soil building, it's green infrastructure. And it's something that everybody can, can do can participate in. So it really is this avenue for engagement of people in the stewardship of our environment and of our planet that any age person can do. And it's a daily practice. So historically, there was one point in time when composting used to be the norm for everybody. Do we know what was the turning point that led us to embrace this man-made idea of waste and then start to actually treat biological waste or resource as if they don't hold any value? I, I, I know that here in Massachusetts, there up until fairly recently, there was actually a system where there were these buckets in people's backyards all around the city and you can still find them. They're like a, a concrete hole in the ground with a steel lid and it had a little foot pedal and people would put buckets in there 
and they would, and it was sort of usually right out the back door and they would step on the pedal and, and the lid would open up and they'd throw their food in there. And, and pig farmers from outside of the city would go around and they'd have contracts with the different municipalities to collect. They would get paid to collect the food and bring it to their farms and use it for animal feed. So it was this sort of very high level, high on sort of the, the hierarchy of, of end use of this material going right back into um, feed for animals. And that, I mean, there are a few people who I've met who are still carrying this on from, the, I, I don't know when it really ended on a large scale. I, I think it was in like the 60s or 70s. Mm, maybe alongside the industrialization of agriculture and the scaling up of everything. Yeah, as as the small as basically the economics of of farming pigs <laughs> of pork changed for small farms, and I think as you know as waste you know its incinerators came online. I mean, it's it's a really interesting subject that I I would love to just learn more about. But um, but I you know I have pictures of these things in people's backyards that are still there today and. It's just a neat story to think about the fact that right here we had this this system, mm. um, you know, in the last century that was really meeting the needs. I mean, it's all over Somerville, Cambridge. I don't know how much of it was in the city of Boston, but um, you can imagine how much less waste there was going to landfills. Right. So I guess that's the hopeful bit. That wasn't too long ago. So hopefully we can no, yeah. implement uh, systems that can work with this modern world today. And I'm curious, why should people care? So for people just learning about this for the first time, a lot of people look at food scraps. Very often they might start to smell in our homes in the trash can and just be unpleasant. So people may just want to toss it out as soon as possible and then out of sight, out of mind. From a carbon emission standpoint, from a health and ecological standpoint, and from also an access to healthy local food standpoint, what are the points of concern for people when we don't have proper waste or resource management and composting systems in place? Sure. So, so from a from a waste side, you know, any organic matter that goes into a landfill, by organic matter, you know, anything that was once alive, right? In, in the composting industry, we call these organics. So food scraps, leaf and yard waste, that sort of thing. If it ends up in the landfill and the landfill gets capped, it goes anaerobic and generates methane. And methane is a greenhouse gas that's um, much, much more powerful than, than CO2. There's, you know, there's various studies on this, but the math that I usually point to is a, a five-gallon bucket of food scraps that's diverted from the landfill is roughly the equivalent of of not burning a gallon of gasoline. So just from sort of a, a offset perspective, in terms of offsetting those emissions from the landfill, it, that's sort of a starting point. But the, the use of compost, again, from a greenhouse gas perspective, is really fascinating. Um, there's a lot of research happening around sort of regenerative agriculture and the use of, of compost seems to, I mean, it's, it's, it's the seed of life. You think of compost, it kind of has this structure, this fluffiness, this, this feeling and look that you would associate with healthy soil. But it's more than just decayed organic matter. It's alive. It's really the seeds of life for the soil. And, and it has a very balanced chemistry. 
So when you put that in the soil, it actually can kind of initiate biological processes in combination with the plants that are growing that starts to sequester carbon. And the carbon in the soil is building up in forms that are much more stable than we ever realized. The dead microbes can kind of get glued to the sides of like mineral particles and can stay there for much longer than we than we thought. And so there's this there's this carbon sequestration side that's really, really powerful. Um, this is a really surprising thing. There's about three times as much carbon in our soil as there is in the atmosphere. And a third of that carbon, less than a third of that carbon is in the top one foot of the soil. So, so in the top one foot of our soil, there's, a, there's as much carbon as there is in our atmosphere. Yeah. And, and then if you go down from one foot to three feet, there's another, there's another third. And then below three feet is more than a third. So, so you've got all this carbon deep, deep down in the soil. And simply by, you know, building organic matter and putting compost in the soil, there's this really long-term effect that's happening of building um, carbon, and it can be sequestered there. And and quite frankly, you know, in order to battle climate change, we need to the carbon needs to go somewhere, right? It's the oceans have been sucking it up. Then they may not do that that much longer. You know, if we can get to net zero, we still have. 150 petagrams of, of CO2 that need to find a home. And the soil is a very logical place to put it because there's so much capacity right. there. And it's actually good for the soil that way. It's not just and it's somewhere to place it. <laughs> and it's actually good for the soil. The plants are healthier. They, you know, their relationship with the with with the microbes is highly beneficial. And by putting, you know, by building the soil, you're retaining moisture you're really feeding this life cycle of capturing sunlight cap capturing energy and building it locally right right in the soil and right in our our plants that surround us so right so i guess on the flip side of that since there is roughly an equal amount of carbon dioxide in the top third layer of the soil compared to the atmosphere. On the other side of that is we have to stop our degrading agricultural practices to not release a bunch of that carbon into the atmosphere. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Ab yeah, absolutely. So first, so that's, you know, so that's the first step and, and, and using compost can help with that, you know, by, by putting that organic matter, you can actually you can reduce the amount of synthetic fertilizers and, you know, other other chemicals that are used in ag and they can be used much, much more sparingly and efficiently. The cemetery grounds I wander through them aimlessly The So do we know at this point how much of the food food scraps that we don't end up eating 
How much of that is currently going to landfills compared to what is being composted? Is there any data at all there that we can reference? I mean, it varies place by place, but I it's it's probably close to 95% nationwide. And we don't have to get too detailed here as I want to encourage our listener to check out your book, which really is a comprehensive manual to composting, including at a community scale. But can you walk us through the different types of composting that people or communities can implement and maybe also a success story on what the presence of community scale composting has achieved for that community? I'll just run through some of the, you know, some of the basic options. So you've you've got food scraps that are generated in the residential sector by by people in their homes. You've also got food scraps that are generated in restaurants, schools, grocery stores, and then you've got food residuals that are generated in food processing. Okay? So, and sort of the methods are slightly different depending, you know, within each of those sectors. In the residential sector, there's sort of three options. There's composting in our backyards, which works very well for a lot of people. Um, it doesn't work for some people. And for those who it's, it's, it's not you know, easy for or it's not convenient for, there can be what's called a residential drop-off or food scrap drop-off see these all over, you know, popping up all over cities. New York has hundreds of them where, you know, you basically can collect your food scraps in your kitchen, keep them in the freezer so that they're not stinking every two or three weeks, one week, bring them to a cart, a location where food scraps can be dropped. And then a commercial food scrap collection service usually will come and take that material to a compost facility. So, and that's and that's sort of the third option for residential is is collection curbside service in where I live in Arlington, Massachusetts. There are four different commercial operators who will, for various prices, will collect food scraps uh, if I wanted them to. Several of my neighbors pay for that service. I compost in my backyard, and so commercial collection happens. You know, is is sort of the main avenue for most businesses, you know, they kind of have, they have their trash hauler, they have their recycling and they have their, their compost collection. So it's sort of source separation happening into these three different streams. Sometimes people are composting like on site at a school. That's a pretty common thing. And then for the food processing sector, that's a you know a much more uniform stream. So typically, that material is going to animal feed. That's where most of it goes. Um, that into anaerobic digesters where they're producing energy. So that's sort of the big picture of how where food scraps are going. And and so you know the commer- that the whole kind of commercial sector. That's really what commercial or it can be municipal collection systems. And sort of consolidating of food scraps throughout a region and, and bringing it to one or several composters. That's really what my book is about is sort of the, the planning of that at, you know, at a very local level. And it, and it takes a lot of time and that's just not available in a lot of places. Places like Massachusetts, it's been happening for, you know, at least 20 years. 
and but other places it 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 just hasn't no one's initiated it the you know the first project that i worked on that was sort of at the community scale was really cool it was in a, a rural part of vermont northwestern vermont and there there was a high school there and they had kind of had this idea we should start composting i think it was an environmental group there that initiated this idea we should start composting and they connected with the local vegetable farm and they started bringing material i think i think that they were literally bringing the material maybe the solid waste district was bringing it from the school to this farm and it was this very ad hoc thing it was happening at a scale that was sort of below the regulatory threshold. And um, and the nonprofit that I was working with got involved because very quickly the, you know, the various parties realized this was a thing that everyone could be doing. And the farm needed to be permitted. They needed to develop some infrastructure. But this is going on probably nine years now. This site, this farm, this vegetable farm has been processing probably close to 10 tons of food scraps each week from the community. And it's most of its commercial, institutional restaurants, grocery stores. Um, There's probably a little bit of residential from residential drop-offs. And I just had the opportunity to go visit him last summer. And I said, how's this going? And he, you know, he, I was worried. I was worried because it's it's costly. It's a lot of work. It's a lot of investment. It's a huge commitment, and and there's real cost to doing this. I was worried. He'd say, "Gosh, you know, this is this is something that you know I got into, and now I'm struggling." But he's like, you know, he, there was no hesitation when I asked him whether whether it was worth it. He he said, "Absolutely." Just the value to the soil, you know. It's like he's described just literally like his carrots have this <laughs> vibratory kind of frequency that he can feel that's coming from this living soil that wasn't there before, you know? And so, um, that just, it just brings a tear to my eye, just thinking about how engaged, how this community came together and it was the waste sector. It was this local farm has been there for generations. It was these kids and people kind of brought it together and, uh, it wasn't easy. But it it really has paid off and it's only grown and and it will just continue to grow. Now, given all of the hidden costs of treating food scraps and surplus food as waste and not realizing their potential to help regenerate healthy soil for a healthier agricultural system, what is the best way for us to move forward from what we have today to having composting become the norm? Do we necessarily have to engage policy? And should we try to prioritize building mass-scale composting systems or more decentralized smaller-scale systems? Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I think it's going to be a combination of larger and smaller scales. You know, there are policies out there that are banning organics from the landfill. I happen to think that in most places that's premature. The, you know, the idea is that if we if we have a, an organ a ban of organics at the landfill, that will create a market, right? That'll kind of be a market signal to to the composting industry or the waste industry that they should invest in this. But that 
added material, the sort of the, the guarantee that that brings of some added material coming into the organics recycling stream doesn't really change the fundamental economics of organics recycling, which is, which is tough because building soil is not, you know, is not an inherently profitable or at least not an immediately profitable endeavor. So I think that we need to find ways to restructure to kind of put the carbon in the soil. And I think that that's, that's one of the things that we really need to, to focus on is there's this synchronicity between the carbon farming sort of research and movement, the regenerative ag movement, and this organics recycling that I hope can kind of meet in the middle. And, you know, because we, we need to incentivize the end use and the building of healthy soil and the, and the sequestration of carbon in the soil, um, which benefits everybody. I mean, these systems, organics recycling systems, they benefit everybody, right? I mean, it's, it's like composters are basically providing a service, an essential service to the community and to the planet, but it's not necessarily something that is valued right now in the marketplace um as as it should be so so yeah so how so there's there's got to be other models there's i um i don't i can't point to anything specific right now there's a lot of really good stuff happening in california though in terms of incentives for for carbon farming and the use of compost and they're really um leading the way in my opinion the the there's two webinars that I wanted to recommend to people who are interested in, in this side of things that um, are on the, on the Institute for Local Self-Reliance website. One is by Calla Rose Ostrander and, and another is by Jessica Chiardis. And they both, I mean, they both really spelled out this sort of carbon compost sequestration connection in a way that was really enlightening and inspiring to me. And I talk about it at every chance I get, because I, I, I just think that this is something that is on people's minds, you know, more and more daily for people. And as much as I want to believe that people are just going to compost because it's the right thing to do, it's just, you know, how could you possibly waste this organic matter? It's like, there's, certainly like the more that we can make it clearly in people's self-interest to do so and make it economically um, viable or incentivized to do so. I, I, I think that some, some sort of carbon credit or soil building policy would really help the industry. Our listeners include many people who've just graduated school maybe or are in other stages of their lives but are looking to see how they might be able to pivot and build towards their passion for ecological regeneration. Since this type of community composting is on the upwards climb right now and we really need something like this in every community, especially in places that don't currently have these commercial services available, can you share how someone interested in starting community composting uh, maybe for their neighborhoods, towns, or even cities might be able to get started and where they can go to learn more? There are, I mean, there are people working in organics recycling to kind of build, build infrastructure, build programming at 
all these different levels. You know, people are studying this in urban planning departments. People are working on this in city, you know, local state government. There are the folks who are just going out there and doing it, who are starting food scrap collection services. There's a lot doing residential collection where if there's enough density of residences in an area and there's, you know, very likely enough of a population that will will pay for this service and and folks are starting out, you know, very bare bones on bicycles. There's a need for sort of the actual composting side of things, which doesn't always exist. And so where there isn't actually a compost facility that someone could bring material to, that that needs to be created. And that and that takes a little bit more thought and, eff- and effort. Um, there's a regulatory side of it that's different in each state. And then there's the planning side of it. Now, my book kind of walks through those. It's really designed for planning, programming, and infrastructure happening at this scale. And it's really kind of a do-it-yourself type of manual. So I think it's a great sort of starting point to, to kind of run through the checklist of things and design infrastructure, design all kinds of different actual composting site infrastructure, collection systems, see what other people are doing. There's also just an amazing community. I mentioned before the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. There's a coalition of, of community composters that is there that is, um, they've kind of coalesced this group. And they, um, the community composters are really open to sharing information and they're you know, very collaborative. And so really like I encourage people to go see what other people are doing, you know, go ride a bicycle (laughs) with someone, get out to can compost sites. If you can, I, that may not be possible (laughs) for everybody, but get out to a few at least. And it's really the education side of things is really important. So there are two week long programs for was really serious about, about starting a compost facility, the main compost school, and the U.S. Compost Council does a does an operator training. Those are both. Re, I mean, those are great. Even if you're not planning on starting a compost facility, if you're working in, you know, planning on working in government, just knowing how a compost operation is supposed to work is really critical. And then for our listeners who may not necessarily be interested in starting a program or doing this professionally, what do you recommend we do to be able to help redirect what might otherwise be biological waste or food waste towards ensuring that it becomes a regenerative resource to support our soil health? Well, this was, you know, this was kind of one of the final takeaways I wanted to actually talk about was the, you know, the details in these systems matter when it comes to what the final end use is. So not every system is created equally, in my opinion. There are composting programs that send organic matter to wastewater treatment plants, for example, where it's mixed with sewage. As much as, you know, I'm, I'm very happy that that material is being recycled and converted to methane and in most cases, to fertilizer, but that 
is a, a downgrade of the sort of the end use potential of that material because there are compounds in biosolids and sewage that really we don't want in a lot of places in our communities, you know, certainly not in our vegetable gardens, not in our, on our, it's not allowed on our organic farms. So, so it does matter. So, you know, ask, you know, usually with a little bit of digging, even just a quick Google search about how different programs operate, where the material goes, if you're, you know, paying for a collection or participating in a program, you can usually find out where that material is going to go and try to choose a program that's that's keeping it as local as possible that's you know that's that's being conscious about the impacts of what they're doing on our environment and on our communities and you know and supporting groups that are taking you know social justice environmental justice into account it's it's there's you know the same choices that we're making as consumers Unfortunately, it's it's always complicated, right? And uh, it, it hopefully hopefully people are making it fairly easy to distinguish between one system and another, and why you might choose that choose sort of um, a a more community local soil food system oriented service. Um, so take the time to to look. So it's www.composttechnicalservices.com to learn more and stay updated on James' work. And you can also follow him on Facebook at Compost Technical Services. Be sure to also check out his book, Community Scale Composting Systems, at chelseagreen.com. And all of this will be linked in our show notes at greendreamer.com. James, thank you so much for joining us today for all you do and for sharing your wealth of expertise with us. What final words of wisdom do you have for us as green dreamers? We're at an exciting time in the composting industry where there's a huge amount of potential and people are making it work in dozens of different ways and in, in, in models. And I hope that people will look to what's working out there and and learn from each other and pass it on and, and, and join in. If this is something that everyone can participate in and it's it needs support so um yes please please compost <laughs> you were listening to green dreamer and i'm your host kamea shane thank you so much for tuning in if you've learned from or have been inspired by this episode i would love to have your direct support on patreon at greendreamer.com support so that i can keep this independent show going and accessible for everyone patreon is where our guests final five tips personal mantras and additional suggested readings will be shared from now on alongside some bonus content and sometimes author book giveaways as well so if you're able to join starting from two dollars per month. Again, it's greendreamer.com slash support. Today's song feature is Yarrow by Kim Anderson. And I also want to thank our audio engineer, Scott Donnell, and our post-production content manager, Elizabeth Joy. We appreciate you so much, and I will catch you soon in the next episode. The grass beneath the trees is the first autumn leaves I feel